This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. There is hope that a landmark American settlement in a massive lawsuit is good news for Canadian victims of the opioid crisis. Yesterday, an Oklahoma judge ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $572 million U.S. for mounting a misleading marketing campaign overplaying the effectiveness of its opioids for chronic pain and downplaying the risk of addiction. So what does it mean for us here? Johnson & Johnson is just one of the companies implicated. Drug maker Purdue Pharma is reportedly negotiating a multi-billion dollar settlement that would resolve 2,000 American lawsuits and allow the company to declare bankruptcy. So what would that leave for Canadians? The legal fight here in this country is being waged both by provinces and by individuals. And we're going to delve into the human toll. Uh, so between January 2016 and the end of 2018, more than 10,000 Canadians died from overdoses and many more lives were ruined. And we want to hear from you about your experiences with opioids, perhaps for yourself or for a loved one. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. But first, I want to sort out some of the legal issues involved. Lawyer Adam Tunnell is representing patients in a $1.1 billion proposed class action lawsuit. And Ronald Bohm is a medical malpractice lawyer and former president of the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association. Thank you for joining us, both of you. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Okay, so let's start with Adam Tennell. Is this good news for Canadians? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to be careful not to get carried away. It's one case in one state where one judge ruled against one defendant. Uh, that said, the allegations uh, directly mirror the allegations in our claim, and they're twofold, that the pharmaceutical companies involved uh, overrepresented the effectiveness of the opioids uh, that they marketed to doctors and to the public, and that they underrepresented the dangers, that they were well aware of the severe risk of addiction, and that they underrepresented that risk to both doctors and the public. Ron Bohm, what's your view? Yeah, it helps. Um, it, it really, as we can see from the news that's breaking, it seems every day, uh, suggests that the pharmaceutical companies responsible um, are now sensitive to the direction and the tide. And I would think that it's a great opportunity now for uh, the provincial governments of this country and the territories to pressure in an organized and systematic way uh, these companies towards a settlement that could benefit um, Ontarians in particular, Canadians generally, to recoup some of the tremendous costs, at least the financial ones, that this crisis has caused. And, so and I, I do believe continue. it's a good thing. 
I'm I'm curious about one aspect though. So uh, we we learn NBC News is reporting in the case of Purdue Pharma, they're negotiating a big settlement uh, that would end in them declaring bankruptcy. So my question is, with all these huge settlements in the United States, what would be left for Canadians? It's a good question, and it's one that we're live to. Um, Purdue is just one um, defendant, obviously, uh, in the American cases. Um, Purdue also had a proposed settlement up here in Canada uh, that we were not involved in, um, and that is currently before the courts. Um, Ron? Well, I think it underscores the need, as I was just suggesting, to to get a move on. Um, Because, yes, some of these um, large American lawsuits um, could be existential threats to these companies. So they're no good to us if uh, they don't have the funds to be able to recoup. A judgment is only as good as your ability to enforce it. So it is important for our Canadian governments to, to get on with it, to move forward and let these companies take our claims into account as well. And some of them may have assets in Canada separate and apart from the American ones, but um, we certainly wouldn't want to see companies uh, dissolve before we get some fair compensation. Do you so have speed is now, it doesn't matter. And the one class action suit that was started in BC, I should note, has been, it seems to me to be floundering. It, it, as far as I know, has been going on for over a decade. Really? Because um, my understanding is uh, that it automatically includes other provinces, and here in Ontario, uh, a law has to be passed before Ontario can join. Is that not correct? Well, I think that's right. Um, and so automatically simply means that I think the B.C. government, which is the only one I'm aware of, that's actually started um, an action, a class action um, in connection with these drugs and their manufacturers, has named the uh, the provinces and the uh, territories as the class members, and that Ontario does have to pass legislation. And I know there was talk of doing that um, while Carolyn Maroney was uh, was AG in this province. I'm not 100 percent sure. Maybe Adam knows if it was passed, but I know they're talking about joining. My concern yeah. is that that legislation um, needs to go ahead and that, that litigation is just one route. Ontario should consider a concerted effort with the provinces, whether that litigation or new ones, to get moving on it prompt. Uh, so-, so just to clarify, um, it, it was in May that Ontario declared its intention to join the action, and all signs point to the fact that that will, in fact, be the case. Uh, it's not an action in which I'm involved. Our, our action is on behalf of the victims, not on behalf of the uh, provincial health insurers. But the provincial health insurer action was commenced in BC in uh, in 2018. So it is uh, it's about a year old um, and remains before the BC courts. Uh, so do you have any sense? So obviously we are behind the Americans in whatever claims we're making. Do do you have any sense of what's going on in Europe? I would imagine that this is uh, just as big a problem in Europe as well. It it certainly is. It's a global problem. Um, There's no question that these uh, these drugs were marketed all over the world, and and these manufacturers really manufactured an epidemic. Um, That's a big part of, uh, of our case is that uh, th- this isn't a case where 
you know, the cure was better than the disease. The the disease that these manufacturers were uh, allegedly seeking to to treat uh, was chronic pain and, and relatively minor conditions um, that were that were that did affect people around the world. But the the opioid crisis that they manufactured was far worse than the pain that they were seeking to treat. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned, for instance, that uh, Europe might uh, get ahead of Canada? I mean, again, you know, there's as rich as these companies are, there is kind of a finite amount of money, I would think. Sure, there, there is. Uh, absolutely. I'm not concerned about anyone uh, getting ahead of our action. Uh, to my knowledge, our action on behalf of the victims of the crisis uh, is further along than any other action. Um, we're not involved in actions on behalf of the provincial health insurers, so I can't speak to you know, Oklahoma being ahead of uh, the British Columbia action. I know that there's very good counsel uh, representing British Columbia and that I think soon we'll be representing Ontario uh, and several of the other provinces and territories. Um, and I'm confident that you know, that good counsel uh, north of the border is going to work as quickly as they can. We're certainly working just as quickly as we can on behalf of the victims, uh, and we're going to keep pressing away. Uh, interesting, uh, as a note, after this was announced, the $572 million, uh, Johnson & Johnson's stock went up because it was expected that the settlement was going to be a lot bigger. Uh, do, do you have any opinion on that? And, uh, you know, this $572 million, how far is it going to go for, for each victim? Uh, is it going to be significant? It's, it's a great point to bring up. I think their stock uh, went up about five points after uh, the verdict was announced, uh, in part because uh, the, the verdict represented about 1% of Johnson & Johnson's annual profits. Um, and so the market uh, certainly thought that the case against Johnson & Johnson uh, was worse than the courts ended up determining it to be. Um, bearing that in mind, I think that there's, there's a lot of grist for the mill uh, in our case up here. Uh, when the market thinks that, uh, that uh, the opioids manufacturer have misbehaved so badly that they're going to be hit with these uh, giant verdicts, uh, it's certainly heartening. And uh, again, you know, uh, how does bankruptcy affect this? I mean, can can some of these companies, because there are a lot of them, there are 40 of them, reconstitute themselves to avoid pain? It's certainly something that corporations have tried in the past. I'm not overly concerned. Um, these are large household names, um, both in terms of the corporate identities uh, and the individuals behind them. Uh, we're not going to uh, to be accepting any, any corporate restructuring or, or anything like that as, as an excuse um, to stop this lawsuit. We're going to press away. These are very deep-pocketed defendants um, who have reaped billions of dollars off the opioid trade. Uh, they're not going to be disappearing overnight. Uh, people, I, sorry, go ahead. If I may, the good news about what you've just referred to is that a company like Johnson & Johnson, for instance, which um, isn't um, ultimately threatened by that kind of a judgment at all in terms of its ongoing viability, um, should be now, one would think, um, more willing to sit down, and you would think that this decision would at very least precipitate their willingness to settle um, with the Ontario jurisdictions and to recognize that 
while not binding necessarily on uh, certainly on an Ontario court, um, they have to be worried about this as setting a precedent and certainly showing that the wind is blowing in the wrong direction for them. And if the um, local governments act decisively and aggressively in asserting their claims, one would certainly hope uh, and think that there would be a willingness to uh, start negotiating a settlement in earnest. Adam Tunnell, is your lawsuit still open? Are you still looking for people to join? Well, you don't need to join a class action in Ontario. Uh, victims are assumed to be part of the action at this stage. Later on in the court process, they'll have an opportunity to decide whether they want to be involved. But it's important that uh, people who have been impacted by this crisis know that there's nothing that they need to do right now to be involved. They're certainly more than welcome uh, to reach out to our firm to share their stories. That always helps us to prove our case. Um, but this isn't a situation where, you know, if, if they don't, uh, get in touch with the firm uh, by a certain deadline uh, that they won't be a part of it. At this stage, there's nothing that Ontarians or Canadians need to do to remain involved in the lawsuit. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's staggering how this toll just keeps uh, getting higher and higher. It, it really is. I mean, we have the numbers to the end of 2018. It's uh, 10,300, but it's climbing all the time. It's uh, do, you, do you keep hearing from people who uh, have more recent experiences, even though we already know that these drugs are very dangerous? Oh, yeah. There, there's still year-over-year year increases uh, in the death toll and, and in ER visits. Um, so I don't think we've, uh, sadly, we haven't reached the peak of this crisis. Uh, I'm involved in, in a good number of class actions, and, and there's no action on, uh, on which my phone rings off the hook like it does on this action uh, with people calling to share their stories on behalf of themselves, on behalf of family members. Uh, it's something that any time I'm out for dinner with friends and the conversation comes up, uh, someone at the table mentions, oh, yeah, this crisis impacted um, my mother, my brother, my sister, my uncle. Um, it's really some, uh, a crisis that's impacted every Canadian personally. Uh, and uh, I'd like to throw it out there that we're opening the lines to people uh, and uh, uh asking you to share your stories and your opinions on this because it really is a crisis that has touched so many people. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to the lawyers involved in Adam Tunnell, who is heading up a class action. His law firm, by the way, is Kosky Minsky. Uh, How many people, Adam, have you been in touch with so far? I, I haven't checked our charts, but it, it, it's likely, I, I can tell you, it's in the thousands. Uh, we, we have a, a communications department that's been set up um, specifically to deal with incoming calls on this. Um, and there are literally well, calls and emails every day. Okay. And uh, Ron Baum, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I think for people to get a perspective of the magnitude of this problem, uh, most Ontarians would know and expect that probably the biggest you know, non-natural cause of death in the province has been car crashes for, you know, decades. And so that you get some sense of the size of this terrible problem that these companies created. It's probably double the rate of people dying from opioid deaths unnecessarily than those who are dying from car crashes. Wow. And Adam, what would you like to leave us with? 
Uh, just to, to remind people that, that we're um, very open to hearing uh, Canadians share their stories with us. I, I know, I'm hoping that they'll share their stories with you uh, on the air as well, but anyone who wants to reach out to the firm um, to learn more about this can do that confidentially. Um, we're happy to talk with anyone who's been impacted this and help them any way we can. Okay, and uh, again, that law firm is Kosky Minsky. Uh, we're going to get to your calls in a moment, Ron Bohm and Adam Tanell. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Libby. Okay, and uh, now I'd like to bring in pharmacist Dean Miller, and he also has uh, some uh, frontline experience with this. Hi, Dean. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm all right. And are you, I'm assuming you are still seeing people who are affected by this? Oh, uh, you know, like the two gentlemen said, it's, um, it's, it's, it's growing. It's not, it's not subsiding by any means. Um, and quite truthfully, I don't even think, you know, prescribing habits have changed radically when it comes to the, these medications. Really? Now, that's surprising. I know that uh, they've probably been tightened up. You know, there are more restrictions on an opioid prescription. I mean, I'm I'm quite shocked to, to hear that from you, frankly. Well, yeah. And I mean, there's been a number of initiatives that have taken place in pharmacy. You know, we had, uh, you know, uh, around drugs like fentanyl, we had a uh, a program called Patch for Patch, uh, you know, that was a number of years ago. And, and you know, I think pharmacists have played a much bigger role in sort of saying, hey, you know what, you got a prescription for 100 here, you probably only need to take 10, or you only need to take 20. Um, I think that might have changed a little bit. But boy, we're sure, we sure haven't seen much of a change in the, the number of scripts. And, and and the frequency. You know, you remind me of a story. Uh, the last time we covered this, stu- uh, this story, we talked to Mike Merriman, who is with the Paramedics Association, and he said that his his wife, who had, I forget exactly what it was, but it was a, a, um, a fairly minor back issue, immediately got a prescription for a hundred, when, like you said, three or five or maybe ten would have been more than enough. Yeah, I think Libby over prescribing on on these medications, specifically opioids, uh, you know, but uh, but all narcotic painkillers, uh, and they all present problems. You know, not it's not just opioids, and there's a few others outside of that class, but but they they all present problems with with not only addiction, but certainly over prescribing, and you know, th- then what happens is is your pains goes away and you're sitting there with uh, 90 of these tablets and you don't know what to do with them or they're sitting in your medicine cabinet or, 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 or you know, as you know, there's an underground market for, for these things that exist because they demand a huge dollar amount out on the street. Okay, let's take a call from Bob in Cannington. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you today? Fine, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for taking my call. Uh Probably my comments along the same lines is over prescribing because I had a leg off in '09 and and the night of the surgery the one of the nurses comes into the room with an IV pole and I asked her what it was for and she said it was for my morphine drip and I said well do I have to have that and she said no and I said well I really don't want it you know uh, because like I think I'm an average kind of guy but. I, unless you live under a rock, I think anybody realizes morphine is addictive, and 
for the people that are bringing lawsuits now, I think it's self-entitlement. They, they're thinking, poor, poor me. I got addicted to morphine, and, like, they didn't have to take it. Well, oh. it, uh, Dean, do you want to respond to that? I, I think that's kind of harsh. Uh, if you're having... Uh, uh, surgery or something like that. I've, I've had, uh, morphine. I've had opioids. I was never addicted to it. Always came off it, but, but I needed a painkiller when you're having major surgery. Dean, do you want to respond to that? Well, you know, for, for this gentleman, I mean, you know, it's, it's good that he sort of spoke up because there's many that don't and just take, you know, prescriptions at face value and, and don't think that it can't, it can be changed at all. And, you know, um, it is a discussion and, you know, everybody's degree of pain tolerance is different. And, and in many cases, there's other alternative medications that can be used before you have to even jump to opioids. Cause like you said, Libby, like a lot of times it's, it's, it's it, immediately you get opioids when, you know, you could have had an anti-inflammatory or you could have had something over the counter, you know, that might've done the job. You never tried it because it was on the prescription that you got from the doctor. So, so you know, speak up and, and you know have a voice on on an issue like this because it's the the unfortunate part is you can get addicted very very quickly. Yeah, and it depends. Some people more quickly than others. Bob, thanks for your call. Thank you. Uh, okay, we we still have a few more minutes on this. The numbers to call four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. So, uh, Dean, you're not seeing any drop in the number of prescriptions. What about people who realize they're addicted and and who are trying to get off? Yeah, I think w- th- there you've hit the nail on the head, Libby. I think the awareness around uh, around this is has certainly led a lot more uh, patients to come and approach the pharmacist, the doctor, the hospital, the nurse to just say, you know, tell me more about this. Do I need this many? So, so a lot more people are as- asking questions, which is the right thing to do. Um, but, but it certainly hasn't stopped the flow of, of medications uh, into the system that are, I mean, some are appropriate. There's many that are inappropriate, um, and and of course that leads to the the, the abuse potential and and uh, and the problems that we're having in Canada today. And do you, when you see a prescription that you think may be inappropriate, do you say anything? Well, you know, uh, the answer to that is is yes, and that is a great way to utilize your pharmacist to just say, you know, tell me more about this because if they don't do it proactively. You know, I mean, a good example, and I don't want to pick on dentists, but, you know, if you go and you have a, a root canal or something, you're probably only going to suffer pain for a couple of days. So, and if you're sitting there with a, a prescription for 50 or 100, the most responsible pharmacist will say, you, you really don't need that many. And, and, and the bare minimum is if you're taking 100 of them with you, you know, maybe maybe I should give you a naloxone kit or something just in case things go wrong or somebody in your house accidentally takes them or they're stolen because, you know, there's it's a very, very complex issue. And, and uh, the good thing is that more people are aware of it now and people are asking good questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's take a call from Bernie in Port Perry. Hi, Bernie. Are you there? Hello? Okay, <laughs> that didn't work out. Um, 
Uh, yeah, um, there was a question from Bernie, you know, why are we talking about a financial settlement? Why aren't these executives in jail? Uh, you know, that's a pretty good question on, uh, it's a different level of court and all of that. But, uh, yeah, that is a question. Uh, it seems whenever, uh, big executives are involved in these things in the United States, no one ever goes to jail. Uh, so, Dean, you, you're giving naloxone kits to people just in case, because uh, we, we've heard of cases where, again, it can happen very, very quickly. Well, exactly, Libby. And I think what a lot of people don't know is they're free. You know, just come down to your pharmacy and, and, and get one because they are free. And, you know, if, you, if you're on them chronically, you, you never know. You know, you never know when, uh, you know, you've taken one too many or, or, or somebody in your family has accidentally taken it because they thought it would be the right thing. I mean, all of these things, they sound pretty, you know, pretty commonplace and they'll never happen in my home, but they do happen. And, and that, you know, you can illustrate that by the number of deaths in the last few years. So everybody that, you know, takes these on a chronic basis should have a naloxone kit uh, in their home. And that's either an ejectable or a nasal spray. Uh, they both work uh, as well, and they both save lives. So, um, you know, it's very important to have that uh, in your home for your family. Let's go to Joanne and Whitby. Hi, Joanne. Hi, how are you, Libby? Thank Hi. you for taking my call. Um, back in '09, I uh, fell and broke my right elbow. And at that time, uh, I then went to the walk-in clinic, which happened to be at the hospital, and they had x-rayed it and kept me for a while and finally sent me home and said, no, there's nothing fine, um, go on home, just uh, take some ibuprofen. And I said, all right. And we were going away to the Finger Lakes for about five days. So we went away and, and uh, you know, I kept icing it and taking the ibuprofen. And I guess the hospital started calling my daughter, who was our emergency contact. And she reached us in the States and said, you know, the hospital really wants to see you. You need to come back. So we came back to the hospital about four days later, and they apologized profusely that someone had misread the x-ray and that my elbow was indeed had and that she was going to make it up to me, and she wrote me a prescription for oxycodone. And I looked at her, and I said, but this isn't necessary. I've been functioning for four days. And she goes, no, no, please take these 100, like there was 100 prescribed, take these as, you know, um, uh, an apology. And we really apologize for misdiagnosing and and misreading the x-ray. That very rarely ever happens. So then I went to my family doctor and said, like, you know, what do you think of this? And he said, you know what, you've been functioning for four days with ice and with ibuprofen. Continue on. Don't, you know, don't take those. That's... It's a little overkill, and I think it was an over-apology, if you ask me, but anyway. Well, uh, you know, there's an example of uh, just what, what Dean was talking about. You know, good for you for questioning that prescription. Dean? Yes. Yeah. Dean? Yeah, I mean, I would. my immediate reaction is, wow, uh, but good on your family doctor for, for recognizing that uh, that you didn't need them, and, and I think we all have to play an effort, both from a patient perspective, your pharmacy, the doctors to say, you know what, you just don't need that many because that's, that's, that's the major root problem here is that overprescribing of these is just out of hand. And then there's all these medications in, in the circulation and they end up on the streets and they end up in, in people's homes where they take them inappropriately. And that's why these deaths are occurring. 
Okay. On that note, we are going to wrap this up. Uh, Joanne, by the way, thanks for your call. And uh, Dean, thank you very much for that. We are going to be following what's happening with these lawsuits. And people, if we could not get to you, Free For All Friday is coming up. Dean Miller, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.